1: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Britain faces an inflationary crisis not seen for more than 30 years. Inflation is due to hit 7% this spring, with energy prices soaring and the government increasing taxes across the board of the economy. So... Why is inflation rising so quickly? Is it here to stay? And how do we get out of this economic mess? To discuss the state of the British economy, I'm joined by the financial journalist and author Matthew Lynn. I started by asking what is causing the current rise in inflation?
2: That's a big question. I mean, I think there's probably two big things causing the inflation crisis, and it's not just a UK problem. And we feel it in the UK, but it's very much a, a global problem. And actually, one one thing that's worth noting is that unlike, you know, the other grade, you know, most recent inflation, not that recent anymore, the 1970s, early 1980s, the UK is actually probably slightly behind the rest of the world. We got slightly lower inflation than the United States, actually slightly lower than Germany. So, you know, we have a long history of being one of the worst countries in the world for inflation. And we may we may well get there. We can talk about that in a minute. But at the moment, we're not too bad. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that it's a global phenomenon. And you're seeing really two things coming together. I mean, we've had, we've had a decade of printing money on an, on an unprecedented scale. Uh, we started after the financial crash in 2008, 2009. Lots of people started warning about inflation but you know it didn't actually it didn't actually it's
1: we've got a visitor so we've got this. an inflationary we've visitor got my cat
2: sorry about this my cat my cat is worried about inflation but my cat will get more traffic than me talking about economics <laughs> that's for sure we'll, we'll get her views in a minute she, she's mostly worried about the cost of co-cat leaving that aside obviously obviously we had money printing uh, on an unprecedented scale and there's a lot of economic history that tells us that you know in certain circumstances that does lead to inflation and then we had the pandemic we ramped up the, The extent to which we are printing money, but we also contract contracted supply. We know we know about that. You know, we were all at home. We were locked down. You know, the shops were shut, the restaurants were shut. You know, you could you couldn't buy stuff. There was no there was no shortage. So when you have a lot more money and when you have a lot less supply, prices are going to go up. That's right in the economic textbooks. You know, lesson one.
1: We should be turning the question around the other way, really, because over the last decade, as you say, we've been printing money, we've been using QE, we've been expanding the monetary supply. So why hasn't inflation really increased until now?
2: That's a fair question, and I think, you know, one one angle of that is it kind of lulled us into a slightly false sense of security. You know, lots of people around 210, 211, you know, were worried about inflation taking off. and We saw governments in this country, you know, George Osborne and David Cameron came into government. You know, they talked a lot about austerity and balancing the books. People were worried about it. You know, Mervyn King, as governor of the Bank of England, you know, used to kind of worry about it. I think the answer to the question is that, you know, economics is not a precise science. You know, it's not engineering. You can't just press a button and say that'll happen, you know, in two years time. It'd be good if it was, if it was that simple. But there's so many factors coming together. and The global economy is so complex that you get all kinds of time lags. So you had kind of you had countervailing forces for quite a long time. I mean, you did have a collapse in demand, obviously, after the global crash so that you know that some of the money printing was making up for that you had a contract, you know, we had banks that went bust and a lot of money kind of disappeared. So we were plugging the holes there. And actually some of the QE was justified in that. And, and you know, look, you know, we could probably talk about that for a long time. And, I, you know, in the economics departments, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and, and MIT and the rest are going to be studying this for 50 years. And, you know, it's kind of scratching their head and doing the graphs and the, and, and the charts and trying to work out exactly what was going on. But I think, you know, the simple answer to your question is, that, you know, it takes time and there are countervailing forces. And I think we became a little bit too complacent you know, after the financial crash, we thought, oh, this is great, you know, we can just print money. Um, wow, that's really good. Uh, we just asked the Bank of England to give us another 100 billion. And then Rishi Sunak and, uh, turn up on TV saying, oh, you know, you can all be paid for staying at home and it'll be good. Uh, but actually what we're seeing now is just those kind of basic laws of economics reasserting themselves. So when you create a lot more money and when you restrict supply, and I think the big thing that happened in the pandemic was we restricted supply at the same time then the only real way for a free market economy to kind of fix that, to bring those two things together, the amount of money and the amount of stuff, is for prices to go up. And that's what we're seeing now. And, and, you know, what we have to be worried about and careful about is whether we can control that, whether we can get that back on track, or whether we get back into some kind of, you know, we get back to a very, very nasty kind of inflationary spiral.
1: Well, we will get on to that in a moment. But I'm still keen to talk about this period, this extraordinary period, as you say, people are going to be studying it for a long time, where we expanded the monetary supply, yet inflation remained low. And one of the reasons that people say that that happened was because of globalization, and you also link it to sort of shrinking in demand after the financial crisis. How does globalization link into all of this inflation at the moment? So the argument is that by having cheap labor and by exporting our sort of manufacturing overseas, we've been living on borrowed time in terms of inflation.
2: There's a lot of truth in that. As I saying a moment ago, you know, we had the kind of increasing the money supply, but we had countervailing forces. Uh, so we were kind of pushing inflation on with one button and we were kind of reducing inflation a little bit with the other one. And, the, and globalization was doing that. So we had a lot of cheap manufacturing, particularly from China and other places in the Far East coming out, and that helped to depress prices down. So we kind of got away with it. And then obviously, when the pandemic came along, a lot of those supply chains became disrupted. I don't think it's 100 percent the case that we, that we were living on borrowed time. You know, we had kind of one off games. You know, globalization is good. Globalization does make stuff cheaper. And it's more efficient, and it's more efficient to outsource stuff and to bring in have supply chains from around the world and to manufacture things where that we know where it costs less to do them. So that's not really kind of living on borrowed time, that's just you know, capitalism working, uh, it's figuring out how to make stuff in a cheaper way and provide it to people all over the place. So, so that so that was a good thing, but you know, I kind of come back to a point, you know, I think we possibly even before the pandemic, we were reaching the limits of that. That we'd kind of banked all those gains. Um, there may be some some gains to be had from it, but not a huge amount more to do that. And some of them were starting to go into reverse. Uh, So, you know, labor costs in countries like China, Vietnam, and and Thailand and elsewhere uh, were starting to go up and, you know, that's good. You know, it's good that people in in other countries start earning the same amount uh, as people in this country or France or Germany are used to, are used to earning. But it makes, you know, makes stuff a little bit more expensive and it it equalizes things out. And that was probably always going to happen. So, I think you know, I think we've kind of already reached a lot of those, the end of a lot of those gains. And the pandemic accelerated and exposed a lot of that and you know now we're probably gonna have to figure out how to increase productivity in this country and that's that's gonna be a bit harder come to think of it
1: (laughs) of course whilst retail prices remained lower in the last decade asset prices have continued to rise if you look at house prices for example this has seen an you know an extraordinary rise have we ignored the inflation in asset prices to our detriment in the last decade
2: yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think so. I mean, you know, certainly lots of people were saying and that, you know, I probably wrote about it and lots of other people wrote about it when, you know, people, people said, oh, well, there's no inflation because of the money printing. So, well, you know, try buying ass, you know, you know, try buying some Apple shares and then it's, you know, it's not so clear that there's no inflation. So there were other prices uh, going up very rapidly to say we ignored it is probably is probably an exaggeration. I don't, you know, I don't think people in the financial media uh, ignored it. I don't think people in the city ignored it. I don't think central bankers ignored it. You know, it was there in the Fed reports and the Bank of England reports. I, I, you know, I guess, you know, the difficulty was, you know, what, what were you supposed to do about it? You know, you can't really put up interest rates to try and control the price of Apple shares. You know, maybe Apple shares are higher because Apple's, you know, everyone loves iPhones and they make great stuff. So there's all kinds of reasons for it. House prices, Again, it was a little hard to say, because, you know, in this country, we have, you know, probably the world's most dysfunctional housing market, probably the most dysfunctional housing market uh, that's ever been created in the history of the universe. And that's a particular problem that we could talk about for, for an hour or two if we wanted to and how we solve that. But I think, you know, I guess I'd make two points about that is that, you know, yeah, absolutely. Asset prices were a kind of signal that something was going on, uh, that inflation was there. It hadn't fed through into what you were paying for, you know, beer down at a local pub or a pizza at Pizza Express. Or what you were paying for, you know, clothes, uh, uh, you know, when you go shopping in the high street or that kind of thing. But that was possibly on the way. And it was also impacting living standards. You know, if you wanted to buy a house, most people want to buy a house. You know, it's something most people aspire to. Uh, You know, it was getting harder harder and harder to afford if you wanted to save, have investments to save for a pension. And again, that's something most people aspire to. You know, you're having to pay more and more to buy any kind of, you know, reasonable equities or, or, or bonds. So absolutely, that was, you know, that was something that was there, and sooner or later it was quite possibly going to cross over into consumer prices, and that's what we're seeing now.
1: Have politicians become complacent to these warning signs? Because there were some economists and some people warning that a huge uh, inflationary crisis was coming because of all the reasons that we've laid out, the sort of easy credit, the QE, the expansionary policies the governments around the world have been pursuing. And there's this idea that a sort of monetary establishment, as it were, policymakers, people in the Treasury, Bank of England, even politicians said, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. Inflation basically doesn't exist anymore. You know, we can get through this. There isn't going to be a crisis. Do you think that people have been complacent over the last decade?
2: I think they definitely have been complacent. I mean, people have been people have been warning about it. You know, we got away with it for a little bit. And, 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 you know, the truth is, it's phenomenally tempting if you're in government, isn't it? You know, I mean, the magic money tree, that's a kind of a glib phrase, and it's a little bit more complex than that. But there's, there's kind, you know, when we call it the magic money tree, there's sort of an element of truth in it. And if you're a finance minister, it doesn't matter whether it's in this country or a different country, if you're a finance minister or, you know, a minister for education or a minister for health, or, or prime minister or president, you start seeing this stuff and you're thinking, oh, you know, raising taxes to pay for stuff, that's thats hard, you know, the focus groups don't really like it. I've got an election coming up, But apparently we could just print the money. Um, and it seems to be okay. You kind of do it a little nervously at once. It's the crack cocaine of public life. You do it, you know, you have a little sniff, you have one go. I'm not an expert on that, but apparently that's how it goes. And, you know, sooner or later, sooner or later, you know, you try it again and again, and you make it bigger and bigger and bigger because it's so easy. And it's, it's partly complacency, but it's partly just a temptation of it. It's the easy thing to do. And we can pass the buck everywhere as electorates, you know, where electorates really, you know, clamoring, clamoring out the politicians said, you know, hey, it's not that easy. We shouldn't be spending so much on health care. We should be charging you £10 a time to visit your GP. You know, uh, were we really asking for that? You know, the truth is we weren't. You know, when they told us that, you know, we they could increase public spending, you know, without having to increase our taxes, we were like, OK, we like we, we like the side of that, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and we voted for it. So there's, there's complacency and blame. Everywhere, and I, but I suppose the important thing, you know, at this juncture, is that people get a grip. We're not in a you know hyperinflationary situation yet. We've got a spike in inflation. We're up to five point four percent. The Bank of England's projecting that we'll go above seven percent, as they are in the United States, at some point this year. But the really important thing, I guess, is that we actually think, yikes, you know, there's some history books there. We know that that's not a good place to go, that we can bring it back under control and that we don't get into the place where it's very, very painful. Because, you know, you you certainly got there in the 70s and you needed deep recessions, You needed deep recessions, and very, very high unemployment to bring it under control. We we don't want to get that if we can avoid it.
1: Before we get into the future and how to control, this current inflationary crisis, you know, worse than 30 years. This is a significant event at the moment anyway. For, you know, and also for millions of people across the country, they're seeing their energy bills go up, they're seeing national insurance go up. This is going to be a real sort of squeeze in your pocket. But before we get on to the solutions, I do want to open the history books, as you say. And first of all, we'll go back to Gordon Brown when he was chancellor, and then we'll go back even further than that. You can mention the 70s is a great example. So Gordon Brown, do you think he, he basically has won the economic argument in terms of brown-eye economics. Despite Labour losing that election in 2010, in all but name they've remained in power in terms of monetary policy.
2: I think that's true. I mean, you know, we're still living, you know, in a kind of Gordon Brown's world. We kicked back against it for a while, you know. I mean, I have, I have an unpopular view, which I out occasionally, that, you know, we underrated George Osborne as a chancellor, not as a human being, possibly. <laughs> Nobody ever really liked him very much. But as a chancellor, he actually did some quite good things. He was possibly of the last, you know, eight or nine chancellors, you know, probably quite high up there. And he did. He did try to control public spending uh, and he did make you know significant inroads, not really cutting public spending. That's virtually impossible. Almost even Mrs. Thatcher did manage to cut uh, public spending. It's, it's kind of off the scale, difficult in a modern democracy. But just by controlling spending, by keeping it, you know, keeping, you know, what the left really attacked everyone for austerity, uh, which wasn't really austerity. It was just saying we're we're not going to spend quite as much more every year uh, as we used to. Just by controlling it and letting the economy grow, he reduced the state spending uh, as a percentage of GDP. And he also cut taxes quite significantly and cut taxes in quite an intelligent way. But we've lost that ever since the referendum. You know, ironically, you know, we've gone straight back to a kind of brownite like, world. Well, you know, it's kind of brownism, Brexit plus brownism. both um, start with a B. There's there's a, a little bit of alliteration about use at a column one day. You know, we've, we've gone straight back. We were fundamentally in that world where, you know, spending is always just reclassified as investment. Public spending by itself is considered a good thing. And the more public spending you have uh, and the more taxation you have, the better it is for the economy. And unfortunately, it's it's fundamentally wrong, but that's the intellectual and political world that we live in. And and possibly until that starts to change and starts to unravel, then, you know, it's it's going to be very difficult.
1: Let's open the history book and take our viewers, our listeners back to the post-war consensus. So this is the 1950s, the 1960s, and obviously the crisis hits us in the 1970s. Can you describe the sort of economic policies of those governments, those consistent sort of conservative and Labour governments, who basically decided that they would have a hugely interventionist economy, we would sort of have quasi-socialism, they had prices and incomes policies? What was going on there that managed to lead to this terrible inflationary disaster in the 1970s?
2: It was pretty much, you know, what we've seen in the last five five to ten years, or what we see at the moment. It was it was a very dogmatic insistence of a kind of, you know, what we call brandism now, but was called bussclism in those days. That was the kind of post war Keynesian consensus. Was a, a bigger state was better. That higher taxes were better. That higher welfare spending was better that the government could manage the economy. You know, we possibly haven't quite got to that bit yet, but we're getting quite close. You know, they thought, but certainly when Gordon Brown used to talk about abolishing boom and bust, you know, he was close to that. You know, there, there, there was a very sort of arrogant post-war Keynesian belief that a bunch of planners in Whitehall or in the, the Fed or the Bundesbank or, you know, wherever, whichever government they they were operating out of, Could, you know, tweak the economy a little bit here. They could press this lever over here. They could just pull on the brake a little bit over here. They could engineer for unemployment. They could engineer growth. Uh, and then it came unstuck, and it came unstuck. The spending, as we are very similar today, the spending just escalated and escalated. You have particular causes, but there's always particular causes. In particular, in the 60s, you had the Vietnam War, which was very, very expensive for the United States. You had the social programs in the United States. Uh, and the world, I mean, there was a slight difference in that the world was much more of a dollar standard. You had fixed exchange rates. So, without Trying to get too technical, that does make a little bit of a difference, uh, but that broke down because of the cost it became too heavy for the American government to support it. Richard Nixon kind of broke the gold standard and the dollar standard, and then you had the oil crisis. the oil crisis came along hey so does that remind us of anything? Uh, there was suddenly a shortage of energy I mean it was a different trigger because it was war in the Middle East and we were dependent upon oil in, in those days. But now we have the net zero stuff. Uh, we have a shortage of gas. We have, you know, President Putin in Russia meddling around with the gas supply. So it was a different set of geopolitical circumstances. It was a different trigger. But the set uh, up was worryingly similar that you had 10 to 15 years of a very arrogant policy establishment that thought it could control the economy, that they thought it was smarter than it really was, and thought that it could create a lot more money, that it could engineer full employment, that it could engineer growth through that, and then a trigger came along, and that sparked the inflationary spiral. It was
1: really, really hard work to bring it under control, and it was painful. I'm reading a lot about this post-war period at the moment. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And one of the interesting parallels I think I'm seeing to today is this idea, perhaps it's less so now, but this idea that they were sort of blaming the British public for inflation. They said, well, you're demanding huge wage increases. You're putting up prices. You're being unpatriotic by doing these things. And the government, through the prices and incomes policies, you know, throughout the 60s and the early 70s, They attempted to control people's wages and they attempted to do that by businesses basically reporting how much they're putting up prices, how much they're putting up wages and the government were telling them, no, you should be doing it by X amount or Y amount to make the economy efficient and to control inflation. Now, recently, we've seen the governor of the Bank of England tell people to not ask for pay rises. Now, he's putting the onus of inflation again onto those people who are demanding pay rises quite justifiably, Huge inflation, energy prices going up, taxes going up. Governor of Bank of England, I think he's on hundreds of thousands of pounds in terms of salary himself. I think he's doing all right. He doesn't need a pay rise. Do you see some extraordinary parallels between the attitudes of those kind of economic elites back then and to today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, you know hopefully, hopefully by you know, force of argument, we'll do our best with The Telegraph and, and, and a few other places to try and, you know, inject some modicum of, of common sense and, and history into this argument. But, you know, absolutely, you're right. I mean, you're starting to see it. I mean, you saw it from Andrew Bailey the other day, popping up saying, oh, you should forego wage increases. It's actually started in the United States. And, and you know, we could talk about this in a minute. You know, the Biden team is, is a big part of the problem. I mean, that, you know, if we think our, our government's a bit loose on one policy you know just take a look at what they're up to in the United States they are off the scale wild but you know some of the kind of people behind Biden have started talking about wages policy and incomes policy, you know, they're kind of dusting it off and saying, oh, you know, it wasn't so bad, was it? Uh, you know, there's a, li- here's a little, here's a little, here's an interesting little chart that we've got that shows that actually it can work. And you're kind of thinking, even Paul Krugman uh, in the New York Times the other day, he was a very left wing economist, big Democratic supporter, was saying, oh, no, <laughs> please, you know, to his own people on his own side, saying, you know, we shouldn't be going there. Prices and incomes policy is a catastrophe. It doesn't work. But that's where you start, and it's not hard to understand, is it? Because if you come out, you know, if you think back to, you know, even Richard Nixon, you know, Richard Nixon wasn't a left wigger by anyone's standards, but he introduced, you know, wages and prices controls in the United States. You know, it's hard in a way to imagine, you know, that it was that state controlled in what's supposed to be the most free market economy in the world. And obviously in this country, you know, we used to have a minister for prices. Kind of, I think it was Shirley Williams, possibly, you know, it was kind of like her, you know, her job was if you wanted to put up the price of a loaf of hovis, You know, you had to go to the ministry and say, well, we're thinking about another 4P on it. And then they'd they'd have a committee and the trade unions would come in and, oh, good grief, you know. It really didn't work. You can see intellectually where it comes from. You know, once you get into this mindset that the government can control the economy, then you think, oh, bother, we've got inflation. Um, So rather than doing the difficult thing, we could talk about that at a moment, which is actually controlling the money supply, having more competition. You know, that's a great way to control inflation, you know, make, you know, break up monopolies, restrict the size of the state. These are the things, you know, we took us about 10, 12 years last time around to get around to them. Hopefully it's not going to take that long this time. But, you know, people will get into this mindset that, you know, oh, why don't we just control wages? And, and, and very soon they'll be saying, well, why don't we just control prices? You know, we're already seeing it uh, a little bit in, in energy, aren't we? You know, there's lots of reasons we could talk about in a moment why energy prices are going up, but you can't just control the price. You can't just go along to the energy suppliers and say we're going to half the price. You know, when the when the wholesale gas price is gone gone through the roof. I mean, they've done that in France, you know. France, you know, a more status country than ours. They just said, "Oh, we'll, we'll have." I think it knocked an eight billion euro bill for EDF, which is also one of the major energy suppliers in this country, and the share price, you know, collapsed on day one. And the bottom of EDF was so, where, where are we supposed to find eight billion euros from? You know, um, you can't just mandate prices. You know, it's, it's you've actually got to fix the real problem. But you can see. That, you know, for, for, for governments that have got into that mindset, it's, it's the next lever that they go to. But it makes the problem much worse, which is why I guess we've got to start you know talking about it and arguing about it now. Because, you know, we could just repeat the whole of the 1970s and early 80s. We could have 10, 12 years of chaos sorting out this problem. Or we could do it in one or two years. It'd be a lot better if we did that.
1: Before we get on to today, I want to stick in the 1970s, just because it's such an interesting example of what happens when inflation gets out of control. So in 1973, as you say, quite rightly, there is an oil shock, oil prices massively increase. This causes particular problems in Britain. And for the next decade or so, we are in a terrible, terrible economic situation. Now, I didn't live through the 70s. When I speak to my parents about it, they talk about sort of having to work by candlelight and, you know, the lights are going out and it was the the three-day week and all these things. Can you describe to viewers, perhaps, who who have never experienced such a, a time of inflation, what that was like? What was the economic crisis like for working people at the time? What happened in the 70s that was so disastrous?
2: Yeah, I think it was tough. I mean, you know, I'm a bit older than you. I was very young in the seventies. I was still in primary school, but I can just about remember it. You know, I can just about remember, you know, the lights went out at, at t- you know, the TV went off at ten o'clock. I think I, was, I think I was supposed to be in bed, but I wasn't always. Um, you know, the, the, with schools, schools were restricted hours. They were they were rolling power cuts. That was partly the minor strike, but if you get back into it, you know, the minor strike was caused mainly by the inflationary problems. It was a grim time, you know, some great music um, and, some good, and some good fashion, but that was about it. And it was tough, and I think, you know, we've forgotten a lot of that, that it was, you know, inflation is... Very, very harsh on ordinary working people. You know, it's fine. It's not so bad for people who are asset rich. It's not so bad for people. It's okay for sometimes better for people in the public sector, but not always their wages don't keep up with inflation. It becomes just, you know, a real struggle. We haven't been in that kind of place uh, for a long time, you know, money starts to lose its meaning, you know, you I think we got up at the peak to, you know, 26, 27 percent annual inflation uh, in the two big spikes in the, the sort of early and then the late 70s. And it causes very rapidly, uh, you know, falling living standards. But also, I think, you know, and Hayek writes about this very well, and, you know, he was one of the great sort of gurus of, of kind of anti-inflationary economics. It causes a sense of dislocation. Prices, they, they have a kind of function in society, you know, they're partly just about buying stuff and selling stuff and moving things around, but they also, they sort of anchor you, you know, thing, you have an idea in your mind that things cost so much. And suddenly they cost a whole lot more. And you have an idea in your mind that, you know, your wage or your salary buys a certain amount of stuff and you have a certain living standard. And suddenly it just all, it all evaporates. It creates a sense of a kind of fluidity and political chaos and economic chaos. I mean, it's, it's very damaging for society. You know, you know come back to what we were talking about earlier. I think people have been, you know, because it's been a long time. You know, people don't have that long memories.
1: People have kind of forgotten how difficult it is and, and being complacent about it. And what's also worrying is that during that crisis in the 70s, instead of turning to the economics that, you know, we would aspire to, the sort of free market economics, at the beginning we turned to Labour in 1974. I mean, the Conservatives were a huge reason that this crisis happened, obviously. But the the government or the British people turned to Labour and they they elected a Labour government. And in many ways, the Labour government made the crisis worse. The trade unions were striking, etc. And this caused the winter of discontent in 1979, this huge zenith, if you like, of the entire economic crisis of the 70s. And of course, Mrs Thatcher comes along and there's even more problems in the early 80s. But eventually it gets sorted out. And as you say, it took a long time for this inflationary crisis to come under control. What's interesting is that in response to inflation, governments and, let's be honest, sometimes the public can look for the easy answers or the short term solutions. I mean, for example, today that Labour are talking a lot about uh, a windfall tax on BP and Shell's profits, which have been significant because of the rise in fuel in the rise in gas prices, for example. Yet they ignore the fact that last year they made huge losses because of the pandemic and perhaps a windfall tax could increase energy inflation even further. So, is there a danger that people are simply going to be going to short termist, easy solutions when we need to be looking at those hard but realistic solutions?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, in a sense, that's what we've been doing for the last decade. You know, we've been looking for the easy short term uh, solutions. And, and unfortunately, there's probably not much reason to expect us to change now. That would be asking a lot of human character, particularly, I think, when there's so little leadership, you know, and it's disappointing for the Conservative Party, who you would expect to show some leadership on this issue. You know, they're in the last couple of years, they've become part of the problem. I mean, that's that's the harsh truth. You know, the Labour Party, you know, we don't, you know, on, on kind of controlling inflation and, and, you know, fiscal responsibility, you know, we don't have great expectations of the Labour Party. And that's lucky because we're going to be disappointed. Um, you know, they're going to reach for the for the easy solutions. You know, they're going to do what the French do, they're going to do windfall taxes, they're going to do price controls. I mean, we, you know, we're already seeing the energy market, the energy price cap, you know, Ed Miliband, thanks very much. You know, it was a bad idea. Windfall taxes are are a bad idea they you know contribute to inflation they destroy profits but actually what they really do is they destroy investments so if you take the energy market for example you know we have particular problems aside from all the money printing. We have particular problems in the energy market, which we could talk about. But the way we get out of it is by more investment. You know, and you could be green or less green if you want to have more wind power. It's the wind's a bit more variable than we expected. That's part of the problem. But you could just build more capacity. You know, be a bit more expensive. You know, other people I'd probably advocate. You know, um, and there's some movement on this. You know, just opening up the North Sea a little bit more, possibly opening fracking, and you could get more as a kind of gap energy. But you know, either way, if you want to be more extreme green about it. You you could have just more of those wind farms in the North Sea. and that, that would give you the electricity at slightly higher cost. But you know, the companies need the profits to do it. You know, if you would take all the money off the wind windfall full taxes, they can't go, you know, they're expensive, those wind farms. You know, they can't, you know, they can go, you, you see them sometimes. You think, wow, that, that looks like a pricey piece of kit. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to reach for the wrong solutions, populist short-term solutions. And I think what we really need in this debate, what we want to make a real change. Uh, and I can't see it coming from Boris. I mean, you know, the, the truth is, it's just not in his makeup or his character. It's actually some kind of leadership. I, I don't, you know, I'm an optimist. I try to be optimistic. You know, where, you know, I think the Public would be open to it, you know. I think there would be a certain, maybe not, maybe not a majority, hopefully a majority, but you know, certainly big chunks of the of the public. If you said to them, you know, people aren't stupid. If you said to them, you know. Remember the 70s, if you're not old enough to remember the 70s, ask your dad, <laughs> ask your mum what it was like going down to Tesco when, you know, when prices went up to 27. Ask your grand if, if she's the only person who can remember it in your family. You know, get a grip on the situation. I think if you've had that kind of leadership and people saying, look, we can't go for the easy answers. We're going to have to kind of rein back a little bit on spending. We're going to have to have a bit more competition. You know, we might have to moderate wages. You might have a 2 or 3% drop in living standards over two or three years and there'll be a little bit of pain. You might see interest rates go up a bit, but that's going to be much better than the kind of 20% drop in living standards that you might see three or four years down the road. Um, You know, whether that's a majority position, (laughs) heck, who knows, I don't know, get a focus group. But I think there would be an audience for it, but we're just not seeing that kind of leadership at the moment, don't we? We're not seeing people going out and putting that message across.
1: This is the interesting thing, isn't it, that there are so few politicians in the Conservative Party who are arguing for this in public. I mean, maybe in private, there are many Conservative MPs who are unhappy about this. And even despite Boris Johnson's woes, it seems that there are, you know, as you say, no one's making this argument in a sort of forceful way, in a public way. Perhaps there are some good ones. Steve Baker, he was on this podcast a few weeks ago making these points. So, you know, all, all the kudos to him for doing that. In terms of the Prime Minister, you mentioned Boris Johnson's leadership. Is this the worst Prime Minister we could possibly have in an inflationary crisis? Because He's such a big spender. That's what he loves to do. He loves these huge infrastructure projects. He can't say no. He doesn't like disappointing people. Public spending cuts are sort of the complete anathema to his entire political ethos or ideology if he has one. So is he sort of the worst prime minister we could have at this moment?
2: We could have Jeremy Corbyn, I suppose, <laughs> you know, which... So if you look at the two, the two choices that were available to us in, in 2019, um, he was possibly the second worst, which may be why people went for him. I mean, I don't think... I, maybe Jason would have been better in, the, in this situation, than Jason Trump John McDonnell. It's hard to imagine. But there couldn't have been a lot worse. I mean, you're absolutely right. It would be hard to have anybody, you know, have anybody much worse. He doesn't seem to have the interest in, in you know, telling people... You know, Home Truth's giving slightly tougher messages, being a bit more grown up and being a bit more realistic to it. I mean, you know, that doesn't, it just doesn't appear to be in his nature. We're just not seeing any signs of it. I mean, I'm sure he could if he could. I mean, he's a good communicator you know, people would understand if Boris said we had to tighten up I hope he tightened his belt a little bit but, um, he might be able to get the message across because, you know, they know that he doesn't want to do that they know that he's not, you know, he's got a Mr. Shirt. He's shirt he's not, he likes us all to have a good time uh, so possibly he actually, you know, he could possibly be, uh, you know, a decent conveyor of that message but he just doesn't show any interest and possibly the ship has sailed I think that probably the ship has sailed now. he might have been able to do it six months ago but it's hard to see him doing it now. To get that message, across might well have to be a different Conservative leader.
1: One of Boris's great obsessions during his Prime Minister, or his Premiership, rather, has been net zero. And this has been, I would say, one of his two flagship policies. We've got net zero and we've got levelling up. In a way, both of them could be argued to be inflationary. Let's stick with net zero, though, because this goes to the energy crisis we currently have. You know, £700 energy bills are going up this year, huge, huge problem for many families around the country. In fact, for everyone, I think. How does net zero impact energy inflation?
2: It's impacted it quite a lot. I mean, uh, you know, we've shifted towards renewables. You know, the basic story is that we didn't have enough we, we overestimated how effective that would be, we estimated, overestimated how quickly it could be done uh, we've moved too far and too quickly, we didn't put in enough gas as I think everybody's starting to accept now so we didn't put in enough, you know, gas as the kind of intermediate energy source until you get to, you know, the kind of promised land of cheap and reliable and plentiful wind and solar power, which is not unimaginable I mean, you, you know, you will get there you know, in a little while, but it's going to take a little bit longer than we think. We ran down our domestic gas industry you know that was a huge mistake we introduced price caps and controls which deterred investment we stopped people investing in the North Sea and we put what's effectively a ban on fracking you know we have huge amounts of shale gas uh in this country you know a lot of it up around country that tells me where the coal was a lot of it around county durham that part a lot of it in the southeast actually around tumbridge where there's a stretch from tumbridge wells to guildford which you don't really think of as kind of energy town um people might might object around those leafy suburbs to have people fracking in the back of them, but maybe not but we you know we stopped all that so if you look at the american energy price You know, it's hardly moved. The the, the natural gas price in America is just like, you know, it's a really dull chart. It just goes like that in a straight line. Uh, That's because they have fracking and we don't. Uh, And as prices have gone up a little bit, the the frackers have just produced a little bit more because, you know, hey, they can make some money at it. Um, That's how a free market works. So a lot of it's self-inflicted. The final part of that story is we've handed a huge amount of power to Vladimir Putin uh, because he's the swing producer uh, in, in Europe. We don't actually consume a lot of Russian gas, but we import a lot of gas, liquefied gas on, on tankers, and that's set in the global market. And Demand for that's gone through the roof because of the problems of Russian supply. So it's directly linked uh, to the green policies across Europe. But, you know, it's a self-inflicted wound. You know, we don't have to be doing that. It's poor planning and, you know, energy price increase, which is like fivefold across Europe in natural gas is a trigger, just like, in the, just like in the 70s, going back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, you can have all of these conditions, and then you just need like a little spark sets it off. The spark can come from anywhere. In this case, it's coming uh, from the gas price. You know, it's self inflicting it comes back, in, in a way, to what we were talking about much earlier in this conversation is this kind of very arrogant policy elite. You know, they think that government's much more powerful than it really is. Well, actually, one of the key lessons that we learned in the 70s, intellectually, people like Hayek and Milton Friedman, which Mrs. Thatcher brought into government, was just this realisation that the government doesn't know that much. <laughs> you know, it's that lovely Ronald Reagan quote about you know, the scariest sentence in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, and, and the government spent a lot of time being here to help. You know, they've tried to manipulate the energy market. They've tried to control the energy market. They tried, you know, they put all these plans in place and you know what, it's all gone a bit off the rails. Uh, It's all gone wrong. And that's not an accident. You know, it's not an accident that that happens. Most of the stuff the government does goes wrong. And that's why intellectually, 50 or 30, 40 years ago, people came to us Let's try and have a bit less government. Let's try and get the government to do a bit less, be a bit less, assume that it doesn't know very much, assume that stuff goes wrong, step back and let the markets work instead. But, you know, jeepers. We're, we're a long way from that position intellectually at the moment, aren't we?
1: I'm going to put the government's case for their economy to you, and I want you to respond to it. So they say that we have record investment in our NHS, as they would call it, in public services, they would say that the economy is bouncing back faster than most of the economies in the G7 from the pandemic. They would say that their furlough scheme was a massive success in saving British businesses. They would say that unemployment is still you know, pretty low and that living standards are rising, although there is this cost of living crisis coming this year. And they're trying to mitigate that with policies such as cutting council tax. And allegedly, they call it a tax cut through the universal credit, the changes in universal credit as well. So this is their argument. In fact, we're record investing in public services, the NHS. This is all really key. This is because of the pandemic. Inflation is an international problem, not just a British problem. It's not our fault. Just give us a few years and we'll sort it out
2: you know if you you know absolutely if you, it sounds a little bit like Gordon Brown to be honest but I, and i and i think that's the problem i mean look you know it, you know it's not it's not uniquely a British problem, and i mean you know we've got good things happening in the economy, and it's, we're not you know we're not particularly in a worse position than, you know, France, Germany, or the United States, or, you know, several of our the sort of main competitor countries. But we're also not in a in a better position. And I think, we, you know, we're ignoring the problems that are coming down the track. So I think, you know, inflation, if we come back to inflation, which is where we started, you know, we're going to have... Quite significant falling living standards this year. If, if you know, inflation gets up to seven point three, seven point four percent. Wages are currently rising at about four percent. You know, the average person seeing, you know, a three percent cut in their in their living standards this year. We haven't seen that for a long time. Even in the crash of two thousand and eight, we worried about it, and we did see a fall in real wages, but it was very it was very minor. And it was very temporary. So I think, you know, that's going to feed through to people's pockets quite soon. Then you see the second round effects of that. Once people's wages start falling, they spend less. Uh, inevitably, they haven't got so much money. <laughs> um, demand for companies go down. The margins, some companies go past. Uh, they can't afford the pay rises. If they, if they have to push through the pay rises because, because inflation's going up, they have to cut back on, on the labor force, or they have to close some branches, or they have to cut some operations. What I'd say to that, you know, it's okay at the moment, you know, you know, because you're at the very early stages of the problems, but you know the problems will get worse, worse quite
1: rapidly. Sunak is responding to these problems by putting up taxes, and he would argue that he believes in sound money. That he's borrowed 400 billion pounds to pay for the lockdowns and the pandemic and the furlough, and that it's quite right that it, we expect taxpayers to pay off all of that debt, and we shouldn't be putting the problem onto future generations through simply borrowing more money. And I know that you've argued recently against this rise in national insurance and against the rise in other taxes across the board, including corporation tax. So what do you say to this argument that, in fact, Rishi Sunak is is simply believing in sound money and he's trying to tackle inflation by putting up taxes and ensuring that we don't put off this problem to future generations?
2: I'd say two things. I mean, a huge part of the tax increases are to pay for his neighbour's increased spending. You know, so we we don't need the increased spending, you know, obviously we had a whole bunch of emergency spending through the pandemic, you know, and that was probably, I mean, we could argue for a long time and we'll we'll discover and we'll be studying it for a long time, whether it was really necessary, whether lockdown was really necessary. But let's let's let that go for the moment and assume that that all that was necessary. But a lot of the spending since then has been voluntary. So a lot of the spending on levelling up, a lot of the spending on things like, you know, I speed to a lot of the extra spending on the NHS, you know, we have very, very poor productivity in healthcare. We just pump extra, we just pump, you know, unbelievable sums of money into the NHS with no increases in productivity, with no improvements in standards. Um, you know, we're seeing that, you know, right across the board. So we could do the tax increases are really to pay for the extra spending rather than to pay for the pandemic. I mean, I work, I would. So that's the first point I'd make. The second point is I think we can, you know, I I do disagree slightly with the kind of sand money. We do need sand money. I think that's important. We can tolerate post a pandemic, slightly higher levels of debt to GDP ratios. We're going to be at about 95% this year, up from about 85% debt to GDP ratio over the course of the pandemic. You know, I think under 100%, it's probably fine. The markets will accept that there won't be a revolt. I kind of had a key match, as long as we're less than France, which is not very hard, um, as it happens, you know, it's probably going to be okay. But you know, the third thing, I'd point which this government seems to have completely lost sight of, is just the importance of tax cuts as a way of boosting growth, you know, is that actually a lot of the tax, they've got to be a little bit bolder. And it was one of the things you learned in the 1980s. And Reagan was much better on it than Mr. Thatcher, actually, was that if you cut taxes, you will be rewarded with stronger growth and vice versa. When you put them up, you get lower growth. So I think the corporation tax increase is a big mistake. You know, we could be getting, you know, a lot more investment, a lot more high-tech investment, a lot more productivity enhancing investment with a lower corporation tax and more money. You know, the increase in national insurance because it's taxing jobs is a mistake. So if we actually... If we actually use the flexibility that we have and we're a little bit bolder, and there's lots of examples I could run through them for you, you know, where we have in the last decade cut taxes and been rewarded of increased revenues. And there's just lots of scope to do that. It just it takes a little bit of guts to do it. And you've got to kind of, you know, fasten your seatbelt and think, okay, this is going to work. We're going to cut this tax in two years down the road. I'm going to get more money in. But it's worked lots of places. And we are in a difficult position. It's worth taking a few risks.
1: On that second point, I just want to follow up on it. So you wrote recently in a Telegraph article something very similar to what you just said. So you said, true, there has been a steep increase in debt, and yet it is hardly calamitous. Even with a likely peak debt to GDP ratio of 110%, the UK is hardly out of line with comparable nations. France will hit 115%. Are you not just part of the problem in terms of causing inflation, this attitude of Easy credit, easy borrowing, lots of borrowing over the last decade, as we've said throughout this interview, is perhaps leading to the exact inflationary crisis that we're seeing today. So by borrowing more and by allowing more borrowing to happen, you're simply going to be fueling more inflation. What do you say to that?
2: it's a fair point and it's a it's a fair criticism but i think i you know the point that i try and make is that you can have borrowing just to spend on unreformed public ser- public services to spend on welfare payments to spend on price controls uh, or you can actually have uh, a slightly looser attitude to borrowing uh, which enhances growth so i think if you have borrowing just to maybe postpone tax cuts to postpone tax increases, so if you think we're going, to, we're going to relax the debt-to-GDP ratio, so we're going to not have the tax increases, we're going to let the private sector grow faster, I think you will, you will actually be rewarded. And that was actually, I mean, it's an interesting split within the kind of general you know, free market centre right. Um, I'm much more on the kind of Reagan, if we go back to the 1980s as a comparison, I'm much more on the kind of Reagan cut taxes, liberate enterprise first, And if the deficit has to take a little bit of the strain, it will, it will pay for itself. And Reagan was right about that. You know, it did work. He had a lovely phrase, you know, I don't worry about the deficit, it's big enough to look after itself, Um, (laughs) which was one of, one of his kind of little jokes. But actually, that kind, that, that kind of approach uh, did work. And I don't think you should let it rip out of control. I do think that we've, you know, we can come kind of have a longer discussion about this. We've, we've, you know, we will have lower interest rates and, and, and money is cheaper. I do think the kind of, you know, 70% debt to GDP ratio is a bit dated. I think you can go up to 100% without, I don't think that's really what's causing inflation. But if you use it to keep taxes under control preferably to cut a few taxes, particularly the particularly the taxes on enterprise and, and investment, then you improve the productivity of the growth of the economy. you let the private sector get bigger at the same time you control public spending, just control it because you, you can't you can try and cut it if you want, but good luck with that you know in in a, in a modern democracy. it almost never works, but if you can keep it level and let the private sector get bigger. Then actually, the state as a percentage of GDP comes down. So I'll take the criticism, I might might be wrong, but I think if you use the debt in that way, you're not staking inflation, you're making the the private
1: sector bigger. But you are, I will concede, you are taking a little bit of a risk. It's a good distinction to make, though, isn't it? Because the government aren't increasing taxes to, I don't know, help the private sector or to help supply side economics they are doing so to basically nationalise social care, to increase funding to the NHS.
2: Absolutely. They're just increasing state dependency. Absolutely. And, and, and they're shoveling vast quantities of money into the most inefficient, you know, well, let's be honest here, one of the most inefficient organisations, you know, yeah.
1: mankind has ever created, otherwise known as the NHS. Absolutely. And that, that could take a whole nother hour of podcast. I just want to finish this interview, though, on the solutions as you see it. And you've mentioned there one of them uh, cutting taxes rather to this inflationary problem what do you think we should be doing? We look back to the 1980s, you keep referring to that. That was the sort of solution, as it were, to the 1970s and all the problems we had uh, in that post-war consensus. How do we tackle inflation in an honest and realistic way in the next few years?
2: I'd have two big elements, possibly three big elements. One, I'd nudge interest rates up. I mean, not catastrophically, but I mean, you know, we have the lowest real interest rates, minus, you know, minus 5% or so ever witnessed in human history since records began. Uh, So I think we need to start nudging those up. You know, we probably need to get up to... You know, 1.5 to two would probably be about the right level at the moment. That's just going to ease things. That's going to dampen down the increase in the money supply. That's going to slightly put pressure on demand. I'd stabilise public spending. I'd just, you know, I wouldn't try and cut it at the moment, but I'd put it on uh, on a tight cap uh, and limit the amount of increase. And I'd cut other taxes elsewhere to try and grow the private private sector. And the third thing I'd do is I'd have more competition policy. Actually, the best way we have a very complacent assumption that, you know, when costs go up, companies, you know, just pass on increased costs to consumers. But that depends on the market, doesn't it? You know, if you're running the actual company, so, well, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we could do it. Maybe some other guy's going to come in and eat our lunch if we put up, if we put up the price. So I think we should be, you know, we haven't been tough enough on competition policy. We should be opening up more markets uh, to more competitors. We should be making it easier for entrepreneurs to come into the market. And that will actually put downward pressure on prices uh, much more effectively than anything the government do. You know, I think with those three points, you could actually control uh, inflation, you know, before it gets out of hand.
1: Thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us. I'm glad we ended it on the solutions and not the problems. Thanks, Great talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.